Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Friday, the 1st of April, in the year of our Lord, 2022. <clears throat> now, I want to apologize for not having this up earlier in the week. Here in Ohio, we've been having um, some really crazy weather, and that weather absolutely uh, plays havoc with my amputated limb. Um, I've just been having a lot of pain, and it's been very hard to concentrate. So um, I've just been kind of trying to bear down and uh, focus a little bit here, but thankfully today I was finally able to get to the podcast. Now, I don't want to say too much going into the sermon for today. I I really just want to let you sort of hear it. Except uh, that I want to say that even though the sermon sounds kind of silly. It is, I think, one of the most important sermons I've given, at least for several years. As some of you know, I've been working on a book about hell um, since 2019, and I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying, and this sermon is actually a pretty succinct explanation of how, through that process, I have come to understand the afterlife and sort of who goes where, that sort of thing. In some ways, the sermon itself was frustrating to write because there was so much more I wanted to say. I think that what I do say here asks more questions than it attempts to answer, Uh, but that's okay because that's what Christianity is all about, exploring this kind of ineffable mystery that always creates new questions. Also, I should say that there are some denominations where a preacher um, would get in trouble, um, be fired, or even defrocked for preaching a sermon like this from this theological perspective. There are some traditions where this sermon would be considered actual uh, damnable heresy. So today I'm just happy that I can preach a sermon like this, knowing that my church and my denomination is a place where people are allowed to ask tough questions Um, It is a place where we do have uh, spiritual and theological boundaries, but nevertheless, it is a place where we can all be free to explore new, or in this case, very old ideas and offer a fresh perspective on things um, to kind of liven up the way we may have been taught or the way we have um, thought about things for most of our entire lives. Anyway, I hope this sermon blesses you today.
This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around his son and kissed him. And then the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, Put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him?
wish to preach to you today from the title, Heaven Buddies. Heaven Buddies. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes things just aren't the same without that one special person, right? For instance, in my first year of seminary down in North Carolina, my friend Scott asked me if I wanted to play golf with him and his friends. They had a free guest pass to a local country club, and I had never played on a private course before, so I jumped at the chance. And I remember heading out on that first tee with my clubs and my shoes and all of the accoutrement of golf, but still thinking that somehow it just felt off, like something wasn't quite right. By the time we had drinks between the ninth and the tenth hole, I got it. All my years playing golf, since I was 11 years old, this was the first time I had ever played around without my father or my brother being with me. And they taught me the game, my father showing me how to swing in the backyard, my, my brother teaching me proper course etiquette. We went to the driving range together, played on Saturday mornings. We were even in a league together. Sometimes I'd play with dad, sometimes I'd play with my brother, sometimes we would all play together. But there was never a time that I went golfing without at least one of them being there. So let me tell you, that day with my friend Scott and his friends, I played awful. I couldn't hit a wood or sink a putt to save my life. And then on the, the 18th green, when I finally put a decent hole together and, and, and sank a long putt for birdie, I couldn't really even enjoy it, you know? Even as the other guys gave me high fives and pats on the back, it still felt somehow empty or meaningless. Because neither my brother nor my dad were there to see it. They were my golf buddies. And I guess sometimes things just aren't the same without that one special person. That's what happens, I think, when you really love someone. That's how you know you've really made that connection when their absence just sort of blocks something that you should like, when something that should be good just isn't really all that great if they aren't there to enjoy it with you. There's, there's something really fun or meaningful that you used to do together, without them, it just doesn't feel right. 
By the way, I think that's what makes it really hard when people just up and leave a church, isn't it? That there are folks who are part of a church family who ingrain themselves in all of our lives and we're here together. And then one day, without even knowing it, you saw them for the last time and never had a chance to say goodbye. I know that everyone who leaves a church has their reasons and that they think it's their business and their business alone, but nevertheless, what they may not realize is that after we've grown so close to them, their absence hurts and things just aren't the same without them. If you ever lost a parent or a spouse or God forbid a child, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? There are certain places, events, holidays, whatever, that just lose something because they aren't there to enjoy it with you. Amen? If you had an experience like that, sure, I, I, I mean, you can move on with your life and, and grief becomes more manageable one day at a time. But, but, but at the end of the day, there's certain things that just feel kind of wrong without that person by your side. So then how ought we think about heaven? You may find this hard to believe. But in my job, I don't really talk about heaven and hell that much, do I? I mean, I know it's strange in that there are some preachers who only talk about heaven and hell. But I can't remember the last time I gave a sermon where I uh, pontificated about the golden streets of the kingdom or the, the sulfurous fires of damnation itself. But I know that in everybody's mind, it's back there somewhere, just off stage, behind the scenes, and every once in a while, it comes to the fore. I was talking to a parishioner from another church one day, just shooting the breeze, and out of nowhere, she told me that she was scared to death, that her dad was in hell. Can you imagine? I said, why would you ever think that? And she said that her dad wasn't particularly bad or anything. In fact, she loved him very much, but he just wasn't very religious. He didn't talk about Jesus or anything like that, didn't go to church, may not have even prayed at all. And, and one day, some evangelical person told her that he was probably in hell. And this woman was crying right in front of me, and I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say to someone who has not only lost a parent, but who thinks that parent is somehow going to be tortured forever and ever? Or who's actually afraid to go to heaven? Because they don't want to be there and find out that their loved one isn't there. I don't think I said anything at all helpful to that woman that day. But if I had it to do all over again, I would have asked her, 
if she planned on going to heaven, and if she said yes, then I would have told her about playing golf with my dad and my brother. And I would have affirmed for her that it is true, that, that, that some things just aren't the same without that one special person. Then if, if that is true, then it must be the case that if heaven is pure joy, if heaven is the, the bliss of God in all its glory, then it must necessarily include those people without whom heaven just wouldn't be heaven for you. That was a clunky line. Let me say that again. If you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven, in heaven just can't be heaven without that one special person, be it a, a spouse, a friend, a sibling, a child, whoever. If heaven would not be heaven without them, then they will most assuredly join you there. Think about it like this. Let's say I want a trip to Disney World. And those of you that know me, you know I like Disney World. But let's say um, my wife, I'm sorry, came down with something painful. Uh, shingles or hemorrhoids or something. <laughs> and, and she had to stay home. How could I possibly go to Disney World without her, right? What kind of person would I be having a great time riding Space Mountain, Thunder Canyon, eating funnel cakes, all of it knowing she was back at home, just kind of walking funny, sitting on those little donut things? Oh, that's awful, right? I would be a jerk of a husband. I would be more of a jerk of a husband <laughs> if I did that. So then how can any one of us possibly enjoy eternity knowing that our most precious loved ones wouldn't be there? And that even more unthinkably that they would be burning forever. A lot of theologians have tried to answer that question over the years. And they've come up with some pretty interesting answers. One said, well, maybe when you're in heaven, your mind is so overwhelmed with grace and beauty and happiness that you won't even think about where your loved ones are. It won't even occur to you to worry about them. Wait a second. So you're telling me that in heaven, I'll be so self-absorbed in the fun I'm having, I'll be so high, essentially, that I'll forget all about everyone who meant anything to me in my life? Wouldn't that mean that in heaven I was somehow less compassionate than I am now? Wouldn't that mean that, that I have more love in my heart for those people now than I will when I am supposedly glorified in the presence of God? That's not what I signed up for. That's not how this is supposed to work. Likewise, there's another theologian that said, well... Maybe God just sort of touches the mind 
of the glorified soul so that they can't even remember their friends and loved ones who might be burning in hell. Oh, so now you're telling me that in order to get into heaven, I have to be lobotomized? That I have to have my memories and my care and my love for my, my, my friends and my neighbors cut out of my mind? No, that's not what I want. I want all my memories. I want all my love. I want all my friends and my loved ones with me side by side. I want them the same way that a game of golf isn't just a game of golf without my dad and my brother. So heaven just wouldn't be heaven without certain people. My dad and my brother are my golf buddies. But they're also my heaven buddies, you know? Along with my wife my mom and my sister and my dogs. I don't care how much they go to church. I don't care what religion they are. I think Beowulf is a Zoroastrian or something. I don't care about any of that because I can't be in glory without them. I can't find heavenly bliss knowing that they are in pain. If any one of them is damned, I will be damned too. And if any one of us is saved, we will all be saved together. I know each of you has someone to whom you are connected like this, right? Each of you has a heaven buddy, so to speak. And, and you can picture that person in your mind. Now, I'm sure you have more than one, but just think about one without whom you could never find eternal rest because you cannot rest knowing that they are in trouble. In fact, I'm, I'm guessing you have a whole group of these folks and all of them likewise have their heaven buddies and so on and so forth, spreading out in every possible direction, ties of love, right? Like mountain climbers connected, waist to waist, heart to heart, towing one another up the same mountain of life toward the same God, seeking the same heavenly summit. And, and, and sure, every once in a while, someone may, may hit a rock and, 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 and stumble from time to time. Some of them may even tumble. And, and hurt themselves and, and trip up a few others with them, but no one is going to fall all the way down because we're all connected. Might I propose that it may even be the case that the whole world is caught up in a web of love and mutuality and collective destiny. You heard it from Susan. Susan? Oh, God. Um, when she was quoting the Apostle Paul, uh, what did he say? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not in Christ, God was reconciling, let's see here, uh, the Methodists, um, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the good ones anyway. 
and that's about it, right? Cut it there. No, that's ridiculous. Is it really so crazy to think that when Paul says that God has reconciled himself to the world, maybe he means to the whole wide world? Kind of like Romans 5.18, where Paul says, just as Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all, Jesus' act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. I mean, you have to forgive me. I'm not very good with words. Does all mean all, or does all mean some? Or consider Romans 11.32, Paul's favorite word, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might be merciful to all. There's that word again. Can all really mean all if it's in the Bible? Because I don't know about you, but it, 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 it seems like when a lot of folk, Christian folks say the word all, what they really mean is some. Or what some of them mean is very few. More specifically, the very few who look or think or act or talk or believe like I do. Okay, you're not supposed to proof text, right? You're not supposed to just lift one little verse up out of the Bible and use it to prove your point. That's wrong. I'm irresponsible. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as all die in Adam, all will be made alive again in Christ. And let us not forget Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Vicar Derek, you got to stop, man. Stop this instant. What are you saying here? That no one's going to burn, that, that everyone will find their way in eventually? That's, that's heresy to say that at the end of the day, all of humanity from all across space and time will somehow bow down before God in submission and grace. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and, and, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. But that's not heresy. That's Philippians chapter 2. Folks, I'm not telling you that you can't believe in hell. You can believe in hell all you want for all I care. The only thing I'm telling you is that you can't believe in a stingy God. I'm just telling you that as a Christian, you're not allowed to be the older brother who burns with resentment that younger brothers and sisters spend their lives in futility and wastefulness, yet are still loved by God, yet are still accepted by their father, even if you don't think they should be. You can't believe that God would so easily spend eternity without his children, and you can't believe that God might be so powerless to save anyone that God wants to save. 
Years ago, I was talking to my dad about heaven. And he said, well, I sure do hope there's golf up there. And I thought he was joking, but he was being as serious as a heart attack. I said, why is that? He said with a perfectly straight face, because I can't imagine that it would be heaven without golf. For him, golf was so fun. And it was so meaningful to him that it was the way he connected with his boys and with his friends and his own father back in the day. And in heaven just wouldn't be heaven without it. Now, I don't know if there will be uh, golf in heaven. Just like Keith, I don't know if there will be classic cars in heaven. Uh, Stephen, I don't know if there will be violins in heaven. Um, Bill, I don't know if there will be model trains there either. But I do know that whatever heaven is, I think you will be there. And I think I will be too. Because I don't think I can imagine a heaven without you. You have your heaven buddies, and I have mine. But if you ask me, deep down, one way or another, I think we'll all be hitting the links with Jesus. Because to him, we are all that one special person. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, there you have it. Uh, that's what I got. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know I don't have it all figured out yet. Even after studying so much, even after writing this book, Heaven, Hell, Purgatory, Punishment, Reward, the Bible, um, all of it is just so confusing and ancient and mysterious, and that's frustrating, but it's also uh, a blessing. But what I do know and I, I, I want to tell this to you. What I absolutely know is that we have an utterly prodigal God. You know what I mean by that? We have a God of profligacy, a God who is wastefully, some would even say irresponsibly extravagant with grace and mercy. And with a God like that, we should have no reason to fear, either for ourselves or anyone else that we may know and love. And now, may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you as you live into that image of profligate love. Amen.